Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I come not with peace, but with a sword. What religion you profess, preacher? The religion the Almighty and me worked out betwixt us. The great and fast has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I finally found something that can make me care about the environment. You know what it is? <laughs> that you were personally touched by, by the havoc that we've wreaked. Oh, you <laughs> mean it's... Harvey? Yeah. I don't know. Like, is that a climate issue? I mean, yeah, I I'm sure know. it played yeah, a yeah. role. No, the, the, I think a listener alerted us to this study that says that if you take psychedelics, that people who take psychedelic drugs start to demonstrate more eco-friendly attitudes so, um, because they're really into nature. So if you take shrooms or, or acid or something like that, which I have enjoyed the, the handful of times that I've, that I've done that, so so you weren't feeling this before but you read that this is a link so the pull I mean, it's it, possible it that like because it's been a while you know so it's possible that at the time i know like i've always been outdoors and it's always <laughs> and i have really appreciated clouds and earth <laughs> and trees and so you know you know what i would do uh would love to do as an experiment with you is um make you take mdma and just chill with some cows. Like, I wonder if the em- <laughs> you would have like overwhelming sense of empathy and stop eating. I them. have so much empathy for cows. I have so much empathy for them that I only eat ones that are treated well their whole lives and who wouldn't otherwise have lived had it not been for the heroic efforts of people like me to continue eating them. They got a, they got a beautiful life out of my, it. You know? my, home, my only objection to this whole line of thinking is that I don't want to talk about population ethics. <laughs> <laughs> Which, right. Right, we were just opening a door that once that door opens, it, it can never be shut. No, so so at at this point, like, um, I wanted to ask you because you're a humble and shy person, but I know that our listeners actually do care. And I, in fact, it was sort of heartwarming to see a bunch of listeners asking how how you were doing um, uh, as a result of of Harvey. Um, yeah, um, I I was touched by that as well. And you know, this was definitely the event. It was such a big story that. Uh, there were people from all walks of life who were sort of checking up. I mean, so I live about 
two and a half blocks from one of the bayous here in Houston, one of the flooded bayous. But fortunately for us, one of the bayous that contained it a little better. Now, that said, there's like a bunch of houses and even like this apartment building that got right by the bayou that the the apartment building got flooded up to the fifth floor. Holy shit. So, and you know, when we went out, it was just normal streets were just the bayou, like just normal streets. There was a gas station that was completely underwater. You couldn't see it. Like you couldn't see hardly any part of it, certainly not the tanks. And it, and it was bad in my area, but we got really, really lucky. We eventually realized, and our house didn't sustain any major, uh, I mean, very minor uh, flood issues, water coming in. But uh, the flooding, although it went up like a, a block and a half away from us in two directions, did not get to our house, which is on a slight incline above some of the lower streets in the in the neighborhood. So is it is it was it just that 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 it was that you were a little bit higher? Yeah, I mean, it it, it is. Yeah. This uh, that we were just high enough so that the other streets that are lower, that's where all the water gathered. I do also think that since the previous floods, they've improved the drainage on some of the lower streets to a point where although they sustained damage, it was nothing like it would have been the last two floods we've had, which is like the last two years. Um, so they, they did improve drainage, at least there. But my whole area of the neighborhood just didn't get hit as hard as other areas. So there's an area where my colleague lives that just the houses and, and sort of going from the university to where the, to where he is, which is about, I don't know, 10, 10 miles or so. It's just like a, just a, a, just a whole line of devastation. And his house was completely flooded. Almost all the houses around him were completely flooded. He's now living and, and for the foreseeable future will be living in our little garage apartment. But it was, yeah. uh, it was crazy. It was really, it was intense. So Eliza, and I were, it was just me and my daughter because my wife had had left on a work trip to Raleigh-Durham at, at a time where it was like, this storm could happen, but she thought at most she could just get delayed a day. And instead right. she got delayed, you know, almost a week. Oh, damn. And she, she couldn't get back. And so, and and as the storm just got worse and worse, there really did come a point where even the most sober weather analysts were saying that, this is an unprecedented event. There's no way we can predict it. It's going to be a catastrophe like we've never seen before. Just going outside my house, I saw flooding like on bridges, you know, that were that are at least 30 feet off the Jeez. ground from the bayou. I mean, it was so there was this creeping sense as the days would go on and this was a multiple day event. So, you know, and it's just the the weather keeps pounding and there was one night where we were just convinced, okay, this is our last night. Uh we're going to have to go up into our garage apartment. And so Eliza and I packed up all the stuff like that was on the floor um in you know throughout the house and got everything ready packed up the food that we had uh packed up the water that we had and we you know had everything ready to go and it just the house just held up so we got i got so fortunate 
I assumed it's because you you painted blood on your door frame. Uh, you got, you got right. I put the shank. I put a, a shank, so I got passed over. Exactly. It, it is. It is lucky. It's it, you know it hit so many different areas of Houston and and also you know other areas of Texas. There was this one town close to the border with Louisiana that was complete. Like the whole town was underwater. Um, Jesus from this and it's just a huge mess like eliza hasn't been back to school she hasn't started school yet she was supposed to start like two weeks ago so they're going to be delayed by more than two weeks it's 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 going to be really hard to rebound from it i mean i'm personally aside from the people i know whose houses but like the the students i just think who are already like so stressed out and overworked and over uh, you know, they have so many things that they're dealing with just under good circumstances, weather-wise, uh, right. now have this piled on. And we missed a week of school. You know, I haven't been back since the flood. Today was the first day that we uh, that we could go back. You know, I'm, I'm worried about that. There were a bunch of heartwarming things. There were so many people would be out and volunteer and bringing stuff to shelters and... Like a lot of natural yeah. disasters, but maybe especially, I think, Houston, which has this kind of quality, I think, in general, there was a real sense of community and togetherness afterwards that I hope will last. It tends to sort of dwindle as <laughs> as the right. event, as the tragic event moves farther away um, right. into the past. I, I was going to say that, you know, the... the, the 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 corollary of you being lucky is that other people weren't so lucky so so i don't know exactly. if you have any special um information about what the best places to to for people want to help maybe we'll put a link or two yeah like, i'll put up the link or two i mean it's it's like a lot of these things politics ends up playing a role in yeah. sort of how to figure out f- from afar at least what organizations to support First, I thought the Red Cross, and then, um, I mean, for us, actually, I'll, I'll say this. While I normally think that social media is like... The bee's knees. Yeah, <laughs> no, just like the bane of my existence, society's existence. It was really <laughs> came through in the at, during the disaster where you could just get updates about what was happening, and, and then afterwards... You know, it became clear that the best way, if you were living in Houston, to help out was just to go to the store that was open, wait in line, because there were lines to get in, because there were so few stores that were open, and just drive them to a shelter. And, you know, social media, whether it was Facebook or whether it was like a next door neighbor app, would just have the, the list of like what these different shelters needed and where they were and who was taking them to the big convention center uh, where a, a lot of flood victims were being they were living because their houses right. because their houses had been completely underwater so so yeah it was like that was at least living in Houston you didn't have to worry about you just had to go to a store and buy supplies that you knew they needed and would be used right there so right. Uh, with all the controversy well there is serious controversy about the red cross so i don't i wouldn't i don't know about that i, I do want to shout know, out yeah. to my daughter because she was yeah. uh, she really stepped up like she was so responsible about certain things like packing up and <laughs> you know 
And there are times where I'm just sort of kind of drinking and like, yeah, all right, let's watch a movie. Let's, you don't, we you don't know, need a like, box of bourbon. Like, she was she was amazing and just like always had a good sense of humor about it. Um, you know when 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 appropriate and never freaked out, <laughs> never panicked. Really was was helpful. That's awesome. <laughs> it would have been. I don't think I could have done. You know the preparations that were done were done in large part because of my 13 year old daughter so that's awesome yeah and uh jen magically got away with uh not being not being there one thing i would say about jen is that she was totally freaking out and constantly wanted updates and then united flew her to her sister's house who lives on the jersey shore and from that point on, and this was after maybe the major threat of the storm, but from that point on until she was able to get home, she was like barely accepting our calls at that point. <laughs> like, she would go like two days without talking to us or being in contact. She would have like three missed calls from you and then she would just text back like, hey, hey, period, what's up, period. Yeah, <laughs> like a selfie of her on the beach. Uh, <laughs> I was worried, and I was like, "How much is too? How much texting Tamler is too much texting Tamler?" I'm like, "Like, I didn't, like, I didn't want to bother you, but at the same time, I was like, is, is, is today okay? Like, is it okay?" <laughs> it seems like you sided with not bothering me. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I uh, I uh, wanted you to check in on Facebook. You you didn't check in on Facebook. Finally, I did. You did. I just right. didn't have like an update. Yeah, and I should have done it earlier because I had a lot of people texting. You but it is you do. But you do yeah. point to a funny thing that like if you check in and then like you die, <laughs> like everyone will think you're right. okay. <laughs> well, I was terrified of jinxing. Also, like I didn't want to say like yeah. I, I honestly to my dying day I will believe that my colleague, a uh, different colleague. Um, was sort of talking shit about the storm the Saturday night before just he was like, right bring it on, motherfucker. Saying, no, this isn't. And yeah, I think he cost like billions of dollars of damage, like virtually directly. Uh, and I said it at the time. It's not like I said it afterwards. Like I said, I think you're jinxing this. I think you're putting Houston under threat, threat right now. And that's exactly what happened. I just picture him like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump drunkenly telling God to bring on the storm. <laughs> It's like he wasn't even drunk. It's not even an excuse. He's Irish and he wasn't even drunk. Um, <laughs> um, you got like people have to respect jinxing. Like people, I, I think this is part of you know being a Boston sports fan is you understand that jinxes are real and you don't fuck with them uh, <laughs> under any circumstances. All right. Well, thanks for the update. Um, uh, and I I think that um, that all of our listeners are happy that you didn't die. Well, uh, so sh shall we move on to the other? Yes, I. Not uh, yeah, we have, a, I have a lot of flood to think about in my other life. Um, today this is the second part of our episode on intelligence, where we tackle some of the more controversial aspects of research on intelligence, um, specifically differences across groups, cultural groups, maybe racial groups, um, Jewish Ashkenazis. I don't know. Do they do well? <laughs> They write the tests. They they can't they can't be bothered to take them. They just make them. We do. That's, that's how we roll. We design the tests and then do well at the tests that we design. So yeah, but first we should talk about other feedback we got on the last episode about our neuroscience and dogs. Um, yeah, uh, sort of dismissal that 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 study and. 
I, I think there was one objection that was in common to a lot of our listeners. Yeah. I, none of them defended the actual blog post uh, <laughs> because it was mostly indefensible, but there was this one sort of aspect of our discussion that bugged them. It was when we were saying that because the way they correlate the areas of the brain with behavioral tendencies or dispositions is by testing the behavior, we'll never be able to have neuroscience um, tell us something that behavioral research also won't tell us, and usually more accurately. I think that was a point that we, I don't know if we both made it, we seem to suggest that that was almost certainly true. And I, and I think what they're saying, and I'll put it in the sense of the dog study, so let's say we could, we're not there yet, we could pin down dog preferences through fMRI you know, investigation at a sufficiently fine-grained level, then if we put them in, you know, show them the, the two owners who are getting divorced, we would actually have a more accurate reading based on the fMRI um, research than we would with what they do behaviorally because we'll know maybe when they're they're actually choosing behaviorally somebody for a bad reason, like they're afraid of that uh, owner more or something right. like that. So the fMRI research can sort of isolate what the preference is versus what the behavior, the behavior does. It makes more sense when you bring it to the human analog. And and I, this is this is not something that like I, if if I if if we sounded like we were saying this strongly, that it would never be a value. It's not that it would never be a value. I don't take that to be the objection. It's that no, no, no. what we it, were saying specific... is it'll never be more predictive right. or, or, or tell us more about accurately about a preference than other ways. Right. So yeah. so I may not have said it in this past episode. I don't remember. I feel like like we've talked about this a few times. And, and I've, of course, there is a way in which if we got to, say, a fine-grained understanding of the kind of activation that would be present when somebody, say, as one reader emailed, um, say, say, say we can tell uh, very accurately when somebody's feeling disgust by looking at a particular pattern of brain activation, and in fact, that you look across, you know, multiple people, multiple trials, and you actually get a very, very predictive, like under all of the conditions in which people behaviorally express disgust, you get, you can infer that this is the brain area associated with disgust. And then there are cases in which somebody may actually be suppressing their expression of disgust. Um, and given that we already know what areas are associated with the phenomenology or the whatever the feeling of disgust, we could put them into an MRI and say, in fact, that they are feeling disgust, even though they might be motivated to lie about it or, or hide it, or in some cases it might be an attitude that they don't even know they have, but we could use it as a, as a sort of what I'll call broadly like a lie detector. Um, that's always been obviously true to me, and I didn't perhaps express that. I don't think that that's what the goal of any neuroscientist, I should say cognitive neuroscientist, is. That would be just a pragmatic way of teasing apart sort of when somebody's lying, when they're not. And in fact, we, we do do this with 
you know, with, with very fine-grained analysis of facial expression, with physiological measures, because it is true that sometimes people don't, don't accurately express their feelings or desires, or sometimes they, they're not, they don't have this, the self-insight to know that they're expressing it. So we look at pupil dilation. You could look at all of these measures. The brain might be one of them. It turns out, though, that the brain, we're, we're so far from that for various reasons um, that, that uh, um, I don't think that it's a, a, a useful way to talk about it right now, like especially, say, in the case of emotions. Um, there, we could do a whole right. other episode about why, why it may not even be that, it, that an emotion like disgust is, is localizable. Uh, let alone like it, brain brain mapping being useful to, to determine when somebody's feeling an emotion. But it could very well be that we get to that point. I, I, then it becomes sort of the world's, as somebody put it, it's, it's the world's most expensive dependent variable. That is, if you exhausted all of your other measures of, of um, analyzing, like physiological, yeah. behavioral, and all that, that would be one way that you might be able to to, to get there if you had sufficient data. But, but I think that, the, that usually the thought is that this is going to explain something about psychology that we didn't know before. And in particular, the article that we were critiquing was thinking that it could explain a really, really important part uh, that, that is what it is like to be a dog. But also not just that it could explain what it was like, because that's just so silly. Yeah. Um, but that it could actually more accurately tell what the dog's preference is than any other kind of measure that we commonly use. I think that's the claim that is barely maybe possible, although I still think that if you can isolate the brain activity to such a degree where you really have a, 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 a good sense of when the dog is choosing something out of fear rather than choosing something because they really prefer it, then it would then you would have you would have to done some sort of behavioral research that made you confident that that's truly yeah. what the dog was doing and it still it will bounce back on that how did they find out in the first place that the dog is actually yeah. preferring this rather uh, versus actually afraid not to choose the thing that uh that, right. that they're demonstrating they prefer the answer it seems will have to be that they did it behaviorally so I, I think there's a, a reasonable intuition um, that is giving rise to this objection. And I don't and I don't think that people don't grant what you just said. I think so. So that you would need you would always need sort of these behavioral measures. And here behavioral is is very wide. Right. You can include things like pupil dilation or whatever um, as the behavioral measure in order to validate the, the brain data. I think the claim that um, that if you got a reliable indicator that that a dog has a desire for something or that a dog is experiencing fear or that a human is, that in any given instance, those data might actually be less noisy than the behavioral data. So what what I think is pulling the intuition is the belief that something like neurons activating is a more reliable measure because it's physical. And I think that that's what it's resting on. I think a lot of these intuitions about brain data and the value of neuroscience are resting on... But, but it's all, all physical. 
it's all physical, right? right? I mean, there are measures that are more reliable than others, but as far as I know, it doesn't, It you know, fMRI is a lot more coarse a measure than people seem to think that it is. And um, and moreover, there's a lot that would go into to, to being able to do that. As the psychologist Paul Ekman points out, like Im- imagine that somebody is in the airport and they're expressing fear and nervousness. You might use that as a way to you might have like heat maps of their physiological activation and you might have like very, very detailed um, high def cameras that are automatically encoding their expression of emotion. But you still don't know what exactly the person is nervous about. They could be nervous because they are, uh, are carrying a bomb secretly. They could be nervous because they're going on a job interview. It could be because you are, were thinking about something from your past that all of a sudden made you fearful. It could be because you're a you, dog in an fMRI machine. You're a dog in an fMRI machine and it makes loud noises. Have you ever yeah. been in? An F- yeah. You've yeah, been in I have. Well, yeah, I've been in a, I've had a, CAT scan after my seizure. But. There are all sorts of things. In the simplest case of a dog feeling fear, it's not quite clear that you would that, that would be the best evidence for determining that a dog wasn't expressing preference in the way that we think. And what you would need is something down to the level of a thought. And I think that's the level of granularity you would even need for uh, something like preference. And even then you have the extra assumption that, that there is a mapping of mental state to brain state in a way that is actually reliable so that everybody thinking of tree is actually having the same neural activation. And, I, and, and there's reasons to think that that might not be the case. You know, we were saying how like people don't think clearly when they write about neuroscience. <laughs> and I, I do think there is something... Just the fact that it's the brain doing something makes people either more certain about it or they perceive it as more threatening. You know, all the Libet studies about you can make predictions about what someone will do by looking uh, at their brain. And they were saying, and this is, you know, this disproves free will because uh, half a second before they're aware of the choice, their brain has made the choice or something like that. But there's so many behavioral things that you could do, you know, just facial expression. I don't know, as someone who played poker and had so much more success doing it online than in person, whenever I would play in person, it seems like it really did seem like they would know what I was going to do before I knew what I was going to do. And I didn't, consider that as a threat to my free will i just <laughs> these people are really good at at predicting uh, right. what i'm gonna do but then but when it's the brain and, and, it, and it's kind of an obvious point but when when it's neurons that are the thing that they're looking at for their prediction rather than just a facial expression or bodily posture or something like that then it's like it's it, people think of it as a whole different category but it's all part and parcel of the same physical thing yeah, I was just lecturing to my class about about the brain, and I so I, I don't like poo poo neuroscience in the way that people <laughs> that I might seem to do so on on the podcast. Um, but but what I do go to great lengths to say is that you know it's a really difficult way of talking about this, and people do do it's a, a difficult thing to talk about because we don't really have the language to talk about. It. But I think you're right that people do think of the brain's physical activity as being a truer sort of uh, like causal mechanism in a weird way. So if 
maybe people think you have less control over your neural activation. And so therefore, like maybe you can go to really, really great lengths to train yourself as a poker player to not have any lets. So tells. maybe it's the, yeah, it tells. Yeah. Uh, let's, <laughs> um, I was, watching I was yeah. watching tennis last night, <laughs> um, because it's sort of like instantiated in a way that you can't direct, like people don't think that you can control the neurons that are firing in your brain, but, but in fact you can, you can, if you can control your tells, you control your brain. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So to say all that, which like, and I still think that neuro cognitive neuroscience is really interesting and valuable. And there are some cases where you might be able to really contribute to psychological theory. Um, I just think there are far fewer and they are for reasons that aren't the ones that people usually mention in these like popular articles. Um, yeah. All right, enough about neuroscience. Let's get to the the real stuff that's going to really test whether I'm right about about you know the chilling the the lack of chilling effect on campuses, <laughs> or uh, John Height is right, or I don't know who. Uh, yeah, I don't know the reason. Robbie Suave at Reason. Jordan Peterson, maybe. Um, <laughs> all right, sure, we take a break. Have we got how many people have asked us to talk about Jordan Peterson? Like, it, I don't know. I don't know the first thing about Jordan Peterson. I know you know him, but I don't yeah. know the first thing about him. I, I didn't listen to the Sam Harris infamous podcast with him. So we're probably not going to talk about Jordan <laughs> Peterson. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know. I mean, I've met him, but uh, yeah. and, uh, interacted with him, but I don't feel like I know. him. But yeah, um, pr probably not. And if and if Jordan Peterson ever does come on, it won't be to talk about free speech. <laughs> I don't want to talk about free speech with Jordan Peterson. Uh, all right. So should we take a break and come back? Let's take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point in the in the podcast, we always like to take a moment to thank our listeners, our growing number of listeners. It's been quite a quite a month. We had over a million downloads uh, last last in the last few weeks. So uh, we really, it's really been, and the feedback has been largely though not exclusively positive so uh we always like and and just really smart i'm always impressed by just the level of discourse that, at least from the people who get in touch with us um the ways that you can get in touch with us you can email us at very bad wizards at gmail.com you can 
um, tweet us at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards. There's an uh, Instagram account, just Instagram Very Bad Wizards, um, and rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. I saw we slipped couple days ago back below one spot the partially examined life so we got to get oh no yeah and i think it's because they had also robert wright on their podcast oh yeah Uh, although they they gave us a nice shout out in their show notes so awesome it's hard to be too bitter (laughs) (laughs) although i find a way you can yeah subscribe to us rate us on itunes always appreciate that you can support us in more tangible ways on Patreon, really, really appreciate our Patreon supporters. We're going to be looking for more ways to reward our patrons. You can find us on Patreon or go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can go to our support page on our website, and then when you go to Amazon, click on Amazon, bookmark that support page, Click on Amazon and um, and then just do your normal shopping and we'll get a small cut of that. And you can uh, give us a one-time donation on PayPal. And we'll try to get another, t- you know, the T-shirts. Maybe we should just get that campaign up and running again now that we have a lot of new listeners. I love that T-shirt, the new, yeah. the new one. So um, we'll get that going again. One other thing, you can like us on Facebook and I really, you know... For the last bunch of episodes, 10, 15, I mean, throughout, but just because we have more listeners now, the, there's the level of comments on the Facebook page. There's every time we always post the episode, and then that's the place where people have gone to leave comments, longer comments than they can do on Twitter. So, um, yeah, I, I recommend going there, whatever your thoughts in general are about Facebook. And actually, that could lead into one brief thing, I guess. One of the more common Facebook comments, as well as a couple of emails, uh, alluded to a little throwaway comment that you made, and I probably should have cut, but left in about the Google memo, where you said there's so much wrong with the Google memo, and then we did not want to go down that road. <laughs> So we so we let it go. But a bunch of listeners wanted to know what you meant. Referred us to the Quillette.com link. Right. You know, the that heterodox, article. Heterodox Academy. Heterodox Academy, all of that. So what, I mean, like, what, uh, when you said that there was so much wrong with it, what did you mean by that? <laughs> I... I, I mean, I don't, I don't have, like, I don't want to get into it now because we're going to get into a whole other yeah. discussion, but we will, we can get back to it. Like I, if there's one thing I want to make clear though, it is, I, I do not think at least I am trying very hard. I don't have a knee jerk reaction against the hard science of, of gender differences. Um, I think that, that my objections really center around the the implications of those things and um, of the findings, the nature of the results themselves and, and the implications for things like diversity and hiring and, and whatever, encouraging women in science and all those things that we um, tried to talk about once. Um, so when, one episode I suggest you don't listen episode to. Episode 45. <laughs> yeah. People either um, love it or hate it. Well, and as people, if we get new listeners and as they're going sort of and binging on the episodes, if you're going to skip one, I, I don't know. 
I can understand that you're not proud of your performance on it, but well, I uh, I mean it's it's hard when you're so right. And so, but but yeah, so so we can we can talk about that. So. I mean, here's the only thing I would say about the Google memo because I'm not I don't know the research. I didn't I don't think I read the whole Google memo. I was deliberately avoiding all the just inevitable controversy about it. Right. The one thing I would say, just based on the couple sort of reasonable secondhand accounts that I have read is that it's complicated, that there is plenty wrong, as you said so confidently and blithely with <laughs> the memo, but there were also a lot of unfair attacks on it. You know, the original Gizmodo yeah. thing that called it an anti-diversity screed in spite of the many times that you know, at the very least, lip service was paid to the importance of diversity. And I think to call it lip service is to sort of import intentions on it that I don't think you'd necessarily get from the actual memo. So calling it an anti-diversity screed, not recognizing that when he's talking about neuroses, he's talking about... Neuro the, neuroticism. The what? Yeah. Neuroticism. Neuro neuroticism, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the big five personality. Yeah, big um, five personality. I think that does more harm than good. And I think what people were reacting to more was the, you know, on, on, in defense of the Google memo was not necessarily the wisdom of sending it, but the reaction against it that was straw manning it. And there were a lot of straw man attacks on it. I, whether I mean, he should have sent it and whether he should have been fired for it, given the climate in Silicon Valley for women right now, those are different questions than whether the memo itself is this call to end diversity and, uh, and you know, saying women can't do science, women can't be engineers. That was, a, I'm reading this and, and he's telling me I can't be an engineer. Well, no, he's specifically not saying that. And he goes out of his way to not say that. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but so, so there are definitely, like, I definitely agree. I mean, I think that, that what, one of the reasons I'm even like, for instance, this topic today is talking about race and IQ is because if, if there are good arguments to be made opposing some of the common claims, they can't be just knee jerk responses to shut up that not to not talk about it or simple allegations that somebody's motivation to talk about them is some some sort of disdain. In the case of the Google memo guy, I think that the motivations to talk about it, I don't think it's straw manning to say that like the guy, the guy I actually believe that his reasons are motivated, um, but that is not to engage with the content of it. And I agree with you that like the reaction of just naysaying it as, as horrendously like uh, anti-diversity is to not to, to not actually engage with the only way uh, to make any progress is to to have an attitude of like actually trying to engage with the evidence and 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 actually take people seriously and res respect their arguments even if even if they're douchebags yeah right which maybe he was and certainly you know it shows a lack of awareness about a lot of the struggles women face in that community. I mean, the best charitable case I can imagine is maybe he's sat through one too many 
implicit bias seminar or diversity <laughs> workshop or something like that. I, I, yeah. I, my point is only that it's counterproductive to straw man. It's counterproductive to overreact. Either engage, as you say, honestly with it, or just ignore it, which I had successfully done until now. And this will dovetail into this topic. What I don't like, though, is the the self-proclaimed righteousness of being pro-science that has led everybody to to sort of accuse op- all opposition to the Google memo right. as being motivated. I, I, I mean, there's, pl- there's so much. There's, uh, again, I think one of the reasons both both of us were avoiding it is for <laughs> as much as we like to talk about controversial topics, there is a knee-jerk level in, in the current uh, discourse about all of these things that is so knee-jerky on so many sides so many that sides. it is frustrating. It just yeah. really, really frustrates me. So I'm not afraid of facts. I'm not afraid of science. Like, you know, facts, fa- it's true facts don't care. But you can easily say things that are misleading, um, even though they're factual, by by not by not pointing to other facts. Yeah, uh, and I, as this John McWhorter National Review piece on race and IQ saying why we shouldn't engage in it in the dialogue publicly, I mean, he makes that exact point. I'm not denying that there are group differences. I'm not saying that there might not be a biological explanation for group differences i don't know but that doesn't mean that it should be uh publicly discussed uh, or publicly engaged in at least at this stage when we don't have anything close to the fact when the facts aren't in about it and he gives a bunch of reasons why so being pro-science and recognizing that facts don't care doesn't necessarily mean you have to trumpet the the facts that you know in every situation yeah and i think mcwhorter's point and we'll link to this article he also has a blogging heads conversation um, about this and then there's a couple of responses and we'll talk about like the specific arguments um, there is a a point that he makes which is so so imagine that this is the case what falls out of it like what what is the value not because I'm afraid of being offended as a black man but but suppose that you are doing this research in all sincerity is it would it lead to improving things and it's unclear that it would lead to improving things it's unclear what like what the goals just to be really clear though like i don't think that that article and his argument is against scientific research in your labs on the issue no Uh, it's about engaging in a public debate about yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that's you're right. Yeah. That's that's that's. But those point. are and, inter- and, two different questions, right? Which is an interesting. There's an interesting question, like which you raised, which is when you choose what it is to study. You know that has some ethical ramifications in and itself. And then when you choose whether to have a debate uh, about whatever evidence there is, that's another. That's a different category of ethical choice (laughs) right i mean like there are scientific questions that are boring um and nobody would bother studying them but but you could propose to study them and it would seem like you're kind of a dick to do so like if if i wanted to know like uh uh, do do puerto rican americans smell worse than cuban americans (laughs) 
like you could do you could actually study that <laughs> like, but do i'd be Jews like what? cooperate less on prisoners yeah. dilemma or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah ratio of nose to dick like <laughs> you know like yeah. and they just separated yeah, do you want to it deny Jews. the facts <laughs> totally good and you could be like well so 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 let's get right into it what i want to do is not dismiss the question in the ways that is often dismissed. And McWhorter does does a similar thing. But let's just, like, let me just put it out there and you can chime in. So traditionally, people have said, oh, uh, IQ is bullshit. It's not, you know, it's not really measuring intelligence. I, I think, listen to the last episode, like, I don't believe that. And I think there's plenty of evidence that, um, although not a perfect, we don't have any perfect set of measurements, that it is a real construct it actually coheres together in a, in a way that makes sense. There are a lot of open questions, but, but um, you know, about how to measure it, how many, you know, is it one thing? Is it a bunch of things? What's causing those bunch of things to look like one thing? All of those things are still open questions, but I think there's plenty of evidence that intelligence is a thing that can be measured and that there are individual differences and that there are heritable differences. Like the, that it in fact appears to have a heavily genetic component we don't know. We don't know what the genes are that cause it, but but it's true. So I don't want to. So so there is this sort of traditional liberal way of dismissing all of the work by saying like it's not fair to to even say that intelligence is a thing, or arguments that IQ tests are completely biased. I think there's even the most sort of liberal American Psychological Association researchers who got together to talk about the intelligence research agree that cultural bias is something that like we've done a great deal of work to get rid of cultural bias that's not to say there isn't some still like there may be some reasons why it's not it's not easy to measure iq in the same way in sub-saharan africa as it is in canada but there are tests that that really you're hard pressed to argue that it is culturally biased and that that is accounting for for differences and I don't think that there's, it's reasonable to say that there aren't group differences. And I'm going to give you a little anecdote because this actually shocked me from my own colleagues. Like one time I was at dinner with uh, my fellow psychologists and a guest speaker. And I said, I was talking about something like how difficult it is to even talk about these things. And I said, for instance, the existence of group differences in IQ between, say, black and white Americans. And I wanted to finish that sentence with... The interesting question isn't whether there are differences. It is why there are those differences. But I got interrupted in the middle of that sentence because of a flat-out refusal for all kinds of motivated arguments to tell me that that difference did not, in fact, exist. And these right. were people who were, like, super well-trained, super sharp, super knowledgeable about statistics, more knowledgeable than me, and knowledgeable about things like error and measurement and how to study groups. And um, they didn't even want to grant that there were group differences, say, between African-Americans and white Americans. And so that, it's a what was their basis for that? They relied on arguments like the ones that I just described, which are that IQ tests are culturally yeah. biased or that they're the intelligence, who knows what it is to be intelligent to begin with. All of the things that I think like, you know, decades of intelligence research showing that these things cohere and that they predict important things, like all of, all of that work, um, attempt to remove cultural bias, like uh, it, it all got just easily dismissed in a way that you would never dismiss 
other careful psychometric work that wasn't right. politically motivated. And I was I, like, I spent the rest of that dinner shocked just trying to defend that we have reliable measures that have documented group differences in, in IQ. And honestly, I, like, honestly, like I am, this it sounds weird to say, but like, I feel like I was the least racist person in that group, but I was the only one willing to just start with that. Like, just grant it, just fucking grant it. Right. Just, I, just to be clear on what the evidence is, because I, because I don't know at all. Yeah. There are clearly demonstrated group differences in IQ. So in, yeah, in this sense, and I'll, I'll get to another objection. So another objection is that there is, and McWhorter points this one out, because this is a very common one that psychologists bring up, that there is more. Uh, okay. So, so let me just state the difference. So if you take a group of Americans and ask them to self-identify as black, white, Asian, Latino, uh, Jewish, say those five groups, there is a clear order, right, where uh, I forget if Jew or Asian is the top one. Who knows? You guys are probably battling it, like partially examined life and very bad wizards. Um, uh, white, Latino, black, right, in that order. And the difference between white and black in when you look across uh, studies um, that have collected these data, it's about one standard deviation, the black and white IQ difference in America. If you recall from last episode, IQ is just defined as the mean being 100 in the population. Right. So, um, uh, and a standard deviation on most tests is 15 uh, points. So about 15 points on average. That appears to be narrowing, right? So that, that difference has gotten smaller over time. Um, there's some debate about how much it's narrowing and whether it's narrowing, but I'm, I'm fairly convinced that it is narrowing. And I think that's actually turns out to be a critical piece of evidence. Um, but, but even if it's narrowing and it's down to like eight points now, say um, yeah. instead of 15, it's still there. And, right. and, and I, I think that, that no, nobody would reasonably take a look at the evidence and say that this doesn't exist. I mean, I think even the most liberal person has to say like, I could be a complete, uh, uh, sort of non-nativist, right? Like a, somebody who believes that it is all socialization and and come up with good reasons why, you know, economic disparities might lead to these differences. Right. But like if you just deny the difference, then you are actually probably failing to acknowledge a, a real economic or social problem. So let me just on- distinguish three things in my head just so I can keep this uh, clear. You could. It's certainly controversial what the cause of the differences are. Yeah. Uh, to what extent this is a result of inequalities, social, right. structural, uh, racism. That there's a there. It's controversial to what extent that explains the difference. It's even controversial, although you might not agree with this, whether IQ matches our general concept of intelligence yeah but what's not controversial is that there are these group differences in iq in iq right as measures of intelligence right and so uh um you know and you can look at uh, i fear a little bit that i was so confident in my assertion that these that this group of abilities that are measured as intelligence in iq tests cohere like there you know there are 
um, some tests in which the the disparity is is greater than in others. So even the most liberal person who thinks it's it, it there are like uh, endemic and s- systemic racism um, that accounts for disparities in in socioeconomic status and income, you would you would think that would be that would be evidence of your beliefs about the inequalities in society. Um, right. And so, and, so the, and yeah. that's just a separate question. Yeah. But but it's just a purely empirical fact that when you measure in the way that we measure, you find these group differences. That's exactly. not deniable. It's not deniable. Yeah. Um, um, and so so I, I want to be clear, because one way of sort of skirting that uh, that average difference is to say, uh, well, when you say that, it sounds to me like you're saying that every black person has a lower IQ than every white person, which is just, uh, it's just, that's just a complete misunderstanding of, of what averages are, right? So if you look at two distributions, the amount of overlap, right, so that you have a substantial amount of black people who are smarter than a substantial amount of white people, like that's just true, right? Like that's just how averages work. So it is yeah. not a claim. And so what you'll often get, and McWhorter points this out, is, is a claim that variability within groups so uh, among say black americans and among white americans is greater than variability between groups the there the attempt is to say that it's a it's meaningless because there is so much overlap um in the distribution so that so that you know there are some really really smart black people and some really really dumb white people and it doesn't and and that somehow that this is falsifying the group difference but that's just not how averages work like that is that's Right. Like, yeah, there's a lot of variability, but like the whole point is that when you take the average of the group, there is a mean difference and that is a, right. a robust one. Um, but but I think the reason uh, the reason people sometimes find these results more threatening than they are is because they don't get this notion of statistical averages. Right. Yeah. It, and this was true, I think, of the Google memo, too, is. Yeah. And I think there is. <sighs> It's not unreasonable to think that the person who brings this up is bringing it up in order to make some further argument. And Stuart Ritchie, in his again in his wonderful book on intelligence, points out that that the history of IQ research um, is littered with people who have made sort of shameful moral arguments about the implications of this. So, so the eugenics movement, um, right? And so there there is obviously a way in which you could take results and and argue for you know mexicans should be sterilized because of the you know there are people who believe that and they might start off by first pointing out these differences and so i understand the reluctance and i think that people on the right who champ who say like you're being clueless about science like how your your liberal uh lens is so strong that you deny the science i think they're missing the fact that like there are reasons to be sensitive to why someone is bringing these things up it's not it's why i would never bring it up in casual conversation that like hey how about that black white iq gap right like you can imagine how that would make someone feel in in your classroom who is black if you didn't contextualize this right so so why do you feel okay about doing it on a podcast that because one i spent a great deal of time in that first episode trying to lay the groundwork to have a reasonable discussion here and the yeah. reason that i wanted to have the reasonable discussion is the very thing that you pointed out in the in the google memo um which is I actually think that I have good reasons to uh, 
to say that this work isn't saying what people think it is saying. And I'll get into those reasons now. But I think that unless you actually bother to have an intelligent discussion about it, it becomes this thing that's just there that people could use um, to justify all sorts of bad things. People could uh, think of us, for instance, as denying science, as having a, bl a complete blind spot because of a liberal bias to, to robust science and therefore have reason to doubt the legitimacy of our other claims or doubt our general reasonableness. And to me, it's really, really important to have these discussions in a way that is intellectually honest across whatever topic. Like you and I have talked with more probably comfort about fucking animals than... Oh, yeah. Right? And, and like if, if we can talk about fucking animals and the rightness or wrongness of human beings, you know, like porking a sheep or something. If we can talk about that and not this, then I do... Uh, th this is, to me, like th this, you know, we have a ton more listeners than we did before, but it's always... You, you and I have always had this safe space where we're just like, look, <laughs> there is nothing that is sacred about uh, about any of this. Sacred enough. I mean, there are a lot of things that are sacred, but there's nothing sacred enough that we, sh that we ought not talk about it. I'm, I'm right. honestly a little offended that you consider, like, man-dog love to be something that is that should be taboo. I know. Just there's that a, impression. I there's mean, a just... really strong effect that people uh, who who engage in immoral practices themselves tend to not view it as immoral. So I can see why you're constant man, man, dog love so right, far. So get to the points that yeah, you're Yeah. Cause so far it sounds like what I, what I might be saying is, is just that the line of like most people who are, who are, who, who think that like there's liberal bias and we should champion the truth and black, white IQ gap exists and it's heritable. And here's where I think that the, the mistake is made. So it's an understandable, I think, step to take. And in fact, Charles Murray and Sam Harris, I think they, they gloss over it. McWhorter glosses over this. It's a point that seems to follow so clearly from everything we've said so far, um, but I think it doesn't. And it's the following. So if you start with the very clear evidence that uh, IQ is a intelligence is a thing it's measured by iq it's reliable robust it predicts things it, individual there are strong individual differences um and that there is strong evidence that it's heritable right and by heritable we mean in this population estimate when you look at things like identical twins and fraternal twins or or, or twins identical twins reared together versus reared apart you have strong reason to believe that it's heritable um, meaning that there is some genetic mechanism that's giving rise to to these differences in, in addition to the environmental reasons, um, even though we don't know what those are. It's taking that, right, and then taking the second fact that race is a inherently a biological difference. So the things that we use to categorize people into black, white, Hispanic, Jew, you know, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, that these are genetic things, that there is then reason to think that the observed difference between the groups must be due to the genetic differences between those groups as well. And I think that that is the misstep. And, and although I didn't listen to all of the Sam Harris, Charles Murray discussion, there is a point in which uh, I think Sam j simply grants this and says, well, obviously, race is biological, 
So it would be weird if there weren't differences um, in something that is as biological as IQ. And that, to me, is the misstep. And so here... Is the misstep that race is bio, biological? No, is the so misstep, I, yeah. yeah. I have to flesh this out. And this is the heart, the heart of what I want to say, because this is, I think, the, the, the important point that is, to me, if you continue to, to uh, endorse this view that, it, that, the, that the science is clear... Then you, then you are actually ignoring a very, very important part of what this science is saying, um, and and it's not. Um, what I'm not saying is that uh, as the other common objection that I forgot to raise that you reminded me of is that people will say, well, race is just a social construct. There's not. It's not really biological. Well, that's yeah. also just dumb, right? Like, if we categorize people according to whether or not they have uh, white skin or or dark skin. Uh, and you, if you really think that dark skin or white skin is not biologically caused, then it's hard to even have a conversation with you. Like right. broad noses, thin or thick lips, narrow noses, big noses, kinky hair, straight hair, all of those things are obviously biologically determined. And so, or, or biologically influenced, right? Biologically, yeah. But I, I mean, honestly, yeah, yeah, you could get a perm. That's right. right. The, the claim here is. Uh, usually that say, you know, on the most lay understanding of what it means to be 50% environmental and 50% heritable and the heritable part being genetic, then I think the natural assumption is that because of the group differences is biological, like like whether or not you have this much melanin in your skin that makes you dark, then, then the chunk of variance that is attributable to group differences must be genetic. And... And so here's where it well, actually... Can we, can we back up a second? Yeah. I'm, uh, the people who say that race is a social construct, they can't be denying and that it's not biological. They can't be denying that there's no biology behind <laughs> skin pigmentation, right? Well, yeah. So there are, there are, vari like, there are varieties of that claim. And like... And to be honest, like there are some people who would say that, like, they, they, like there is a more reasonable way of of denying the biological essential the, the essentialism. The essential. Of I think race. that's what they're denying. Yeah, but and that should be denied, right? Well, so there's like you know there's a lot of good race theory about like a you know we should a, do a, a lot of thing on that. Uh, yeah, it does boil down to what you think race is biologically, and so. I think that what people uh, often think is you can't be crazy enough to deny the biology. So what is a race? So like what, what are these categories? And so you could do your best to say like there's some sort of family resemblance that is yeah. people who tend to share these features like uh, straight hair, thin lips are more closely genetically related to each other than people who have uh, dark, uh, dark skin and thick lips. So I, I think the belief is that what you're doing is you're you're making a just a genuine sort of genetic distance argument. Right? You're saying like you you share more biologically with people who kind of look like you um, than people who kind of don't look like you in these ways. The part that's obviously socially constructed, which I think is shouldn't be denied, is what features we decide uh, right. categorize somebody's race. Now, there are some ways in which there clearly is 
like a, a, a family uh, sort of familial, like people who are in my family literally are genetically closer to me than people who are outside of my family. Is race like that? Well, here's where I think like there is so there, it really it, it really matters what your theory of race is. And here's one way where without even being a biologist, I have on the face of it reasons to doubt that biology is causing these IQ differences because it relies on a fundamental assumption that the morphological difference, the observed differences that we use to categorize people in, in race are tracking the relevant genetic mechanisms that would cause intelligence to exist. Right. So that's the inference that you want to deny. And that exactly. makes sense. Yeah. And, and I don't even need to know the genetic differences, like which genes cause intelligence. All I need to know is that they are variable to the extent that we have measured them. Like it's clearly going to be dozens, if not hundreds of genes that actually influence intelligence just looking at the genetic differences that cause the features that we use to categorize race, right? All of these group difference uh, studies are done basically like asking people to categorize themselves black or white. And if you, if you like, it should be obvious to most Americans that there are plenty of people we categorize as African-American who have largely European ancestry. Right? right. Like there's a reason that we use the phrase one drop rule. So like it actually means that that uh, some people who are African-American who get genetic testing realize that they actually have more Irish blood in them than they do. Uh, can you know, West African blood or whatever. And so if you're going to have a theory that that what is accounting for the racial group differences is some sort of genetic similarity, then it's an odd finding that everybody we happen to categorize as black in America also shares the essential genetic uh, difference that gives rise to intelligence differences. Um, and that it wouldn't be the case that, um, a say, because black people in America have way more European uh, ancestry than black people in Africa, that you wouldn't get this huge difference in intelligence because of the amount of white, whatever, quote-unquote, white genetic stuff material right. that they have. So, right, because... One thing that's completely implausible is that the genes for skin pigmentation are linked to genes for uh, for intelligence. So we can exactly. rule that out just it's, given so that you have these differences from African Americans that have that whose descent is all over the place, yeah. including European. Uh, that is reason to us to believe that much of these much of the difference is explained by social and environmental uh, yeah. causes. So even when you look at within Africa, right, the amount of genetic diversity that is within Africa is much greater than the amount of genetic diversity that is within Europeans. And so, so you really need a, a theory linking the particular genetic mechanisms of intelligence to the genetic mechanisms that give rise to race. And, um, and it really, there is no rule of nature that says that the observable physical differences in two uh, people uh, is tracking right. the biological ancestry in, in an important way. So, so to, you know, 
this is uh, sort of a reductio because this is a like a I mean not a reductio this is like a, an extreme case to illustrate the point. But you can literally have ident you know uh, sorry twins that are born to the same mother, um, one black and one white. Like that that is possible. It would be weird that those genes that cause one to be white and one to be black are exactly the ones that lead to intelligence. Like there's no plausible biological theory. And there's there's um, a, a a paper that I'll link to. I'll link to this author who's, he's a, a, a biologist. He has a, a great, so a great paper on race, a couple of papers on race and what genetically it means. And, and there's, he says it perfectly when he says uh, the following quote, there is no evolutionary justification for this dominance of easily observed morphological traits. Indeed, it merely arises from the sensory constraints of our own species. Therefore, most evolutionary biologists reject the notion that there are special, quote, unquote, racial traits. It, it, it's a simple thing to say that because I can see uh, the breadth of your nose and the color of your skin, that this is what is tracking your genetic diversity. And as, as he points out, like, it, 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 that's just a quirk of the things we can see. There's so much biological difference that we can't right. see that, it, that we have reified as society. We've reified race based on these particular biological traits. Because and we're so, such a visual species, yeah. and that those are big visual differences. Yeah, right? and it's yeah. exactly, and they exist, and they're biological. Um, it, this is also not to say, I think, something that needs to be pointed out. It's not like something like uh, myopia, like a, a, a simple genetic trait, where we know exactly the genetic mechanism of what causes people to, to, you know, I don't know, maybe we do, or be we don't, but we, yeah, to be nearsighted. So there are some things that we know exactly that genetic trait. Like there are some diseases, for instance that right. um, we know like Tay-Sachs in, Tay in Ashkenazis or uh, sickle cell in some African populations. Like those things we haven't, we can easily say, yeah, that is in fact what those people share. That is the genetic material that those people share. And that's why we have that disease. Something like intelligence is an implausible claim that, 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 um, that they would all cluster together in the things that we also observe in their face. Right. Yeah. So on the face of it, you don't have a reason to even start this task unless you already have reified that race is encoding a, such it. an important set of biological traits. And I think this is what McWhorter himself just grants that. I Well, I, I think he grants it for the sake of argument. Yeah. He yeah, says perhaps. he starts out saying, suppose it's true. Right. He yeah. says, you know, what would be the benefit of. Uh, having a public debate about it and he but but i i don't i think that he is granting this tacitly by saying it could be true that there are real black white differences and i think that by saying that um well what he, you're not you said that that there are real black white differences. yeah i know it was all sort of to get to this point which is to say that the black white differences are in fact there are categories of black and white they're reasonable they're biological they're just based on a kind of biology that is very very implausible to use as the as the thing that you use to test the between group differences right so so just the starting off of saying like let's ask people to categorize themselves into race and then see those differences is as arbitrary from the perspective of somebody suppose you could see somebody's genes you had a, 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 it was observable all of their genetic differences, not just these morphological traits that we call race. Um, it, it is an unreasonable thing to start off in this project by assuming that there is gen, there are genetic differences that will be tracked by black white in a way that I don't think is denying that black white exists as categories, and that we re, I think it's an 
unjustified reification that you need to correct that would prevent you from even doing this research to begin with. So this is a very subtle point that you're making, um, and it's so subtle that I'm not 100% sure I understand it. Um, so let me see if, like, just yeah. tell me if yeah, this yeah. is one way of interpreting it. So you find, as you said, is that there are these group differences. There are, there are you, you measure people by how they identify themselves, and you come up with these group differences that are narrowing but still significant. We also know that heritability uh, explains, in general, uh, a good chunk of intelligence. But you're saying when it comes to these group differences, it is um, it is implausible to assume or or speculate that they are caused by genetic differences at all. The genetic differences that happen to track the things that we categorize people in terms of race. So, so you take, you know, there's something like in Africa, there's something like, th you know, the average African has like three times the amount of genetic diversity than, than the average like differences between two white, something like that, don't quote me. Um, it would be a, a really crazy coincidence that the things that cause those particular features that all of those people share, like darker skin compared to like white people, um, that those would be the exactly the ones that are causing intelligence. Those visual, right, uh, perceivable group yeah. differences that lead us to distinguish between races. Um, exactly. So, so you could just just to let me yeah. finish the, the the final sort of implication that I take for what you're saying. Then, so that in this with these groups or these populations, you're saying it's likely that the that the differences that there are are explained almost entirely by uh environmental or social um, yes yeah yeah and and while it sounds like i'm like somehow i'm denying the facts like i think that that you you're right that this is a really subtle point i think that's why it's not raised that much but it is i think a critical point for the argument that race is race differences are tracked by genetic differences, uh, because without that key step, I think that you're n you're not on good ground. So it makes much more sense to have an argument that says something like, um, "Look, we we use the one drop rule in the U.S. Um, for categorizing people who are black, and even black people themselves in America um, tend to categorize themselves as black when they're mixed, um, and so." we observe group differences. Those things are real and they're there. The, the more plausible mechanism is that people who are categorized as black in some way that is not just the heritable part are actually scoring lower on these IQ tests because of something that's unknown. And I think another really critical point to make is that just because you say that it's the non-heritable part it doesn't mean that we know what features of the environment are actually causing this. And so, right. I, so I think that one of the mistakes people make is to say like, well, we've tried with like these enrichment programs um, to uh, raise the IQ scores of people and they don't work. Well, that's, that's you know, maybe, may and if it's plausible, like I believe that the data is that they don't work very well. But um, I think that when we say environment, we, when, we, when it comes to what influences intelligence, 
we think that the environmental influences on intelligence must be something like teaching kids well. Preschool. <laughs> yeah, right? And like, who knows? Like, obviously, there's a yeah. ton of nutritional differences. There could be all sorts of unseen environmental influences that don't have any real, real conceptual link to intelligence that nonetheless are affecting. And in fact, that's likely just because yeah. of how. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, th I, I think because this is such a subtle point and so difficult to understand, and I'm, I think I only, I, I, I get it, but I think I get it like I would have trouble yeah. sort of, you know, telling, making the argument that you just made to somebody else and responding to, to right. their questions and objections. But I, but, but I, I take it this is McWhorter's point of, in some ways, why it's not at this point fruitful to engage in a public debate about it because people will either with good intentions or bad intentions just misuse or misinterpret the evidence in ways that suit their political purposes, their whatever purposes. Yeah, yeah I think that one of the things that's going on is that people don't think that the science is subtle. Like they think that this is one of the things that they can easily understand. And so therefore there are implications that they feel that they can sort of derive from what the science says. And the truth is nobody, you know, there wouldn't be public discourse about, about, uh, you know, the Krebs cycle in biology, like what, <laughs> or whatever, you know, nobody would care. Nobody cares that much about it. And in this case, because there are clear disparities, I think that the way in which we communicate the science leads people to believe that, like, especially when we say 50-50 biology environment, um, and we know that race is biological, that it seems like such a clear step. But So I disagree with McWhorter on that we shouldn't have public discourse. I just think that, that uh, we just we need to have a more refined way of speaking about this, not just to just not speak about it, because, because there are social disparities. But before I get... Like before we wrap up, I want to see if this example works better. Like we've talked about black and white and, I, and it seems like a really subtle point, but it, would it be more clear if I used Latino as the category? Because when, when given like a self-categorizing test now, like if, if you ask me to report um, and you give me like, as I used to get when I was a kid, it'd say, it would say black, white, Hispanic, uh, Asian, Pacific Island or whatever. Um, and I would say Hispanic. Because, in fact, I am Hispanic. You don't look Hispanic. Yeah, right? So just that, that fact that I don't look Hispanic. And, in fact, there are people who also would say Hispanic who are black Dominicans or black Cubans. That the fact that we categorize, self-categorize as Hispanic is masking a whole bunch, in this case, clear morphological differences. But um, So it's a useful example because I think that, like, it becomes obvious that the, the categories that we use as social constructs, like I think being Hispanic is a thing. It, it's a real category. Like we all speak Spanish and we all even share some common features of culture. Calling your friend's essay. <laughs> like hot chili peppers in your candy. But it is, uh, when if, if you were to actually say like, the reason that you, David, are... Uh, lower in IQ is the same reason that, you know, Joe Puerto Rican in New York City is low IQ because of that genetic stuff that you share. I'd be like, what genetic stuff? Right? Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, we are genetically as distant as you could be, even though we're both Hispanic. Right. Black as a category it's is like as that. variable yeah. for things that we can't see. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think that's, I guess the reason that's a good example is because people are just more aware of the diversity of origins of Hispanics just because we know that there's South America, Latin America, there's Spain, there's the, you know, in some way it seems arbitrary that we've all categorized ourselves as Hispanic, right? And Arab is the same way, right? Like it's right. it's a category based on language. So I, I don't know. Like I hope it all makes sense because I don't want to deny that there are biological differences. Like there are like, like I said before, Ashkenazis and right. Like you, you, it really makes sense to say that you guys share something. Um, and it might turn out that like the IQ part actually does make Ashkenazis smarter. Like we, you know, I don't know. I, I, don't I know, think but, it definitely does. I mean, my takeaway from this whole discussion is that there's no chance that your IQ is higher than my IQ. <laughs> I think the well I think that's pretty clear just from from the fact that Jews make the IQ tests. Right. <laughs> we rig the system. <laughs> you get a you get a little bump. Yeah, no. Okay, wow. That was more it, the, the issue is more complex than I um than I imagined. I mean, I was sort of thinking that we talk a little bit. I mean, I, we, we probably don't have time now. Um, we didn't really engage in the, the ethical debate about how, yeah, uh, you know, whether this should be carried on in public um, and McWhorter's arguments. But that's but that's OK. Maybe at, at a I, you know, this could be another a topic for another episode more broadly um, the ethics of doing a specific kind of research, like choosing what yeah. kind of investigation to carry out, and then the ethics of deciding what kinds of experiments to uh, engage in uh, in in public in a way that will definitely have, because of the way public discourse operates, could have implications for for po- social policy. So I think right. both of those are interesting questions. Right, and and I think you know. I have mixed feelings about like the the McWhorter sort of argument about about removing this from public discourse. I'm sympathetic to it, but I also think that um, if what I'm saying this this sort of more subtle approach to it is right, then what it's what you still are left with is like a, a, a real group difference that you might chalk up to to environmental differences that I think would be are important to figure out. You know, and and one of the mysteries is so, you know, the flit effect that we talked about before. What why are people getting smarter? Why? Like, what are the environmental features that are causing people to get smarter? And what is accounting for the the observed uh, closing of the black white uh, gap? Um, Right. Right. And and I think those those could be important things to understand if what you want to do is sort of bring up the level of intelligence to, you know, to the extent that you can. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I at with the evidence that is in right now, I guess there's a question of whether it's worth discussing publicly, yeah. given all the opportunities for misunderstanding a yeah. complex, subtle, uh, and misinterpreting it and using it for bad reasons, or just sort of well-intentioned but still misguided ends. So, I mean... 
it, it could be that once we have a better understanding of the social or environmental factors that are at play here, then it will be definitely worth discussing. Um, I don't know. I had some sympathy with his view, which is why I kind of feel yeah. a tiny bit uncomfortable, given that I was largely... Pers- but I guess he did this, right? So he he uh, wrote this article. Yeah. and I, I yeah. like I like the article. Yeah. I think that there's reason, like, there is an intellectual honesty that he is displaying that, that just because, you know, I was making a separate point that I think might make, sort of render his points moot. Like, I, that doesn't... I actually think that a large part of what he says is, is reasonable. Like, I think it needs justification and the truth is you know is you could sidestep race altogether and just measure people's IQs as individuals and see what improves people's IQs without ever resorting to that popping into the category level of race like I actually think that that's a reasonable approach and and you know uh, I was and by the way, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm not a biologist. Like, I think this is compelling, and I feel the need to sort of thank you for the patience that you've exp- expressed in letting me rant about this, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. But it could be that McWhorter himself would be compelled by my arguments and say, oh, okay, so then whatever. Like, that's, you know, that's just another reason to, like, maybe sidestep the stuff. So maybe I don't we'll think that there's anything in principle. Yeah, I would love to, ha- to have him on, actually. I was going to say one last thing, which is, uh, well, two last things. One is that this, these arguments, one of, the, one of the reasons I said early on about like why I don't think this episode is the right uh, one to talk about the Google memo is because there are uh, obvious biological differences between sexes that, uh, that could account for observed differences in, in these abilities in a way that I don't think is... is a, or preferences or interests. Or, or, or preferences yeah. or whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, in a way that I think is a non-starter for, for the racial category, that biologically, the sex category, there's a lot more reason um, to, 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 I think, figure out what's going on there. And the last thing I was going to say is in true Very Bad Wizards fashion, I don't care if we have millions of listeners now, the real pressing question is, is there a dick size difference across races? <laughs> this is the research that NSF. Sh- there is there is an actual Wikipedia article on race and penis size, um, and it's already hard enough to get data on IQ and yeah. and race because of for all the reasons we were talking about being politicized. But you can only imagine being that guy or that girl who decides, you know. These data are just messy because of all these biases. I we need a good measure of cock size <laughs> to finally put this question to rest. All right. Well, I hope this was. Uh, I hope this doesn't uh, lead to our removal from our current positions. I hope. It, I don't think it should. Um, I think you were pretty honest about it. I don't know. I don't know any of this research. So focus all of your. Social justice warrior ire on Dave for this one. Uh, yeah, you can right. return yeah, to me th- later. Can you can, can I ask you this like final question because uh, yeah. I do have to go too. But um, do you think that people on the right side of the spectrum or on the left side of the spectrum will have more ire about <laughs> what I said? I find it hard to predict. It's hard to predict. I think you could get ire from fuck i'm gonna be off of twitter for free speech warriors and the social (laughs) justice warriors yeah no that'll be that'll be interesting or no i because people don't even 
Um, all right. Thank you for joining us. I hope you made it through the end. I think that's the thing that will get us in the most trouble is people don't listen to the end. Uh, yeah, there are snippets of the conversation that you could take that would make me sound like a dick. Yeah. VBW no context on Twitter. <laughs> like, why don't you take a break from this one? Please. <laughs> yes, please. I beg you. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you, you earned a vacation, you know? <laughs> Uh, join us next time I'm very bad with it Just a very bad wizard.